0: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. It's season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, bringing you evidence-based insights from world leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. It's World Series week here, we're in late October, always an exciting time of year and of course, really exciting to see how they've actually made it through the season with COVID and all the other concerns going on. And so with the backdrop of baseball, I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with Zach Schonbrunn, author of The Performance Cortex, how the brain impacts performance in sports like baseball, but also other elite performance across other sports as well. Zach is the senior editor of business and technology at The Week, a regular contributor to the New York Times, whose work has also appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek, Fast Company, ESPN The Magazine, Vice, The Athletic, and many, many more. In this episode, Zach is going to share his insights from his terrific book, The Performance Cortex, discussing once again how the brain directly impacts performance in baseball. He'll share the biggest surprises, on his tours of various neuroscience labs around the country, and how the brain knows when to swing and when not swing in sports. He'll also talk about pattern recognition versus reaction time, how even elite experts struggle in a new context. And then at the end of this interview, we actually shift gears a little bit to talk about, you know, what makes a great writer and of course the power of storytelling, which if you're a writer is obviously tremendously important, but as a practitioner, also, in terms of that buy-in and being able to achieve compliance and connection with our athletes, so so very important. It's a really insightful conversation here with Zach. I hope you enjoy it as you take in the World Series. Go Dodgers! Um, awesome. Listen, this episode is sponsored by the Peak Online Course in Performance Nutrition, which launches November first. You know, at the moment, we've got attendees from over ten different countries that include professional elite athletes, coaches, practitioners, and the like. So. If you'd like to join, you can still save $60 off the regular price until Sunday, the 25th at midnight. And then the regular fees will continue until the course starts on November 1st. And of course, enrollment will close on Friday, October 31st. So if you'd like to jump into that, 20 expert interviews, 10 modules, two live round tables. It's gonna be a fantastic experience. So hope to see you there. You can go to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org and check out more information. If you're a strength coach, nutritionist, practitioner, personal trainer, you want to upgrade your performance nutrition skills and earn some continuing education education credits as well, then this course is for you. Awesome. Season four, episode 17 with author Zach Chambra. Enjoy. Zach, appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: Fantastic. Well, Maybe you could start here by giving listeners a little whirlwind tour of your journey to senior editor for business and technology at The Week and, of course, a longstanding contributor to the New York Times. <laughs> sure. Um,
1: you know, happy to. Uh, I, I guess, um, you know, I got interested in journalism, and in particular sports journalism, um, when I went to Syracuse uh, University. Um, In New York, and you know, it's a big journalism um, school. Uh, They, you know, they have a long history and uh, a great tradition there of um, student, uh, you know, student-led journalism. So, no, I always loved sports. Um, I played growing up. Um, You know, I was a fan of sports. I was never as good as I as I wanted to be. Um, None of us are. Yeah, but um, you know, so it always kind of partly frustrated me, but also motivated me to try and stay involved as much as I could, and, and um, you know, I and and so just kind of pairing the my my desire to kind of stay within arm's reach of, of uh, athletics with uh, a, a passion for writing, it, it seemed like a natural fit um, to uh, to be a sports journalist, and so you know, I did that for. Um, Really six six or seven years, um, you know, I got hooked up with the New York Times pretty early out of college and, um, you know, I was uh, covering mostly local New York uh, sports teams, um, you know, the Jets and the Giants and uh, the Knicks and all those other uh, struggling franchises that are now, um, you know, struggling to win games these days uh, <laughs> outside of the Yankees um and uh you know so i was i was fortunate enough to to be able to cover a lot of um you know the teams in in and around new york city and um you know as well as some of the some of the major events um for the times over the years i covered the super bowl i've covered the world series uh did a lot of college basketball uh, march madness and final fours and um you know, so uh, I I, lo- I just loved um, you know not only being you know at at events and talking to athletes, but you know there is a certain kind of storytelling aspect to sports that um, really. Always appealed to me and and so uh while i've kind of tra- transitioned in the last couple of years to more of a business focus and and you know the nights and the weekends of, of sports writing uh did kind of take its toll um and i'm now more of a kind of a nine to five type of uh job as an editor at the week magazine um you know i still have a lot of interest in in sports and you know finding interesting sports stories or people to profile and and fortunately you know in that um In that uh, in that field, you know, in in sports, there's plenty of interesting characters. And, um, and so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at.
0: Yeah, so many great storylines in sports, and we'll definitely circle back to to that side of things. But I'd like to dive into your fantastic book, The Performance Cortex. What was the impetus for you in writing that book?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I'm talking about Yankees and Mets and, and things like that, it's it's really and that, that was has had been most of my focus uh, for, you know, for most of my career is kind of focusing on these professional teams and and um, and getting to talk to athletes. And, and um, you know, but I was always interested in, in um, you know, what it is that makes them makes them who they are, what makes them great, because it was always such a struggle for me. Right. And and I knew, you know, I knew I didn't have the genetic gifts, um, that some of these athletes do, yeah, but it's a huge factor. It is a, it's a huge factor, but I also felt like there may be, you know, something else, else kind of missing. And I, I, guess that sort of tacitly was, was trying to, was, was probing me to investigate further. I never really, you know, put two and two together until I, I got started on this book. Um, and which, which got me on this path to understanding or trying to understand the, uh, the role that the brain um, plays in, in elite and skilled movement. Um, and so the way that this came about for me was really completely um, you know, uh, serendipitous. You know, my wife um, saw a little blurb in, in one of my um, Columbia alumni magazines about just a little profile of a startup uh, at a Columbia University of uh, these two neuroscientists and one of their labs that was interested in studying the brain and the way that the brain um, performs uh, for baseball hitters. And so they were kind of working with the Columbia baseball team, um, trying to use some neuroscience equipment. Um, they were, In particular, they were using the EEG mm-hmm. uh, and tracking, um, you know, the the neural correlates of, of a decision um, to swing or not swing at a pitch. And, you know, when I – tracked up with them this was around 2015 I believe that's really they were just it was very rudimentary you know they had um, they had a uh, a simulation of a little ball coming toward a hitter from a hitter's vantage point Um, you know and it moved as quickly as a as a pitch would from a major league pitcher and uh, with that simulation you know with a with a keyboard all you had to push whether you decide whether you wanted to swing or not swing at this pitch depending on whether it looked like a strike or not um and uh and with that simulation, they were able to um you know, use the e e g to track when exactly that decision was made uh down to the millisecond right and um
0: it's incredible because you know, it 's obviously coming in so fast and these days faster than ever with so many pitchers throwing over a hundred miles an hour and to be able to see yeah you know, when these decisions are actually made because it 's not what we think it is, is it?
1: Well, that's right. and and you know, what they were able to do was we listen, we've always been able to know when a hitter decides to swing at a pitch, right? Because he swings. you know right? I mean, there's a there's a physical movement that goes along with that decision. Um but what these guys were able to do with their neuro uh, neuro um, science equipment was they were able to see when that decision to not swing was made, because it's still a decision. It's still an activation of neurons inside the brain that's happening, um, you know, in real time, Um, but that decision uh, was never, you know, it never had that that motor output. It never had that that physical swing uh, associated with it, and so teams uh, never knew, you know, when when exactly that decision was being made, and it turns out that there are vast differences, even among great hitters, in terms of uh, the timing and the accuracy about those decisions, and so you know, these two guys, um, Jason Sherwin and Jordan Moraskin, had kind of tapped into a little bit of that um, in Columbia when I when I kind of discovered them. Um, and I was able to follow them um, for the next few years as they realized that they could bring that data, that that data could be valuable to Major League Baseball teams. Um, and uh, and I so I sort of followed them on their path to... You know, bring that information to major league teams. What teams were able to do with it, um, and uh, and so you know, my book kind of unfolded from from there as a partly a narrative around their work uh, and what they're doing and, and why, but also um, to me, it just became um, you know a an opportunity to explore how we move and the way that the muscles are often given most of the credit for our movements, but in reality, um, it's our brain that uh, is really responsible for our skill. And so, um, you know, I visited neuroscience labs all around the world, um, talking to the researchers that are Probing what's exactly going on here, and and um, you know, I, I tried to get as much as I could uh, in a, in a readable, digestible book. Coming from me, you know, and I've never taken a neuroscience class in my life. You know, I, I uh, my, the furthest I got in science was was AP biology in high school. So I was learning, you know. <laughs> Along with uh, along with, the way, right? Yeah, um, and so you know, I wanted to make it a, obviously a readable, a digestible book, but also um, fairly informative for 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 people who have those same questions.
0: And Zach, what were some of the biggest surprises as you were going around to the various labs and meeting these leading world experts in neuroscience? What were some of the things that really stood out to you? Whether it was from the information that you were uh, gathering from these experts, or even just from your experiences of being in the labs.
1: I mean, you know. To me, it was all a surprise. Basically, I know you know it, it. I like I said, I, I really didn't have um, much background in any of this stuff uh, before I got started on this. And you know, I bought a textbook, a Principles of Neuroscience textbook. It weighed ten pounds. It was seventeen hundred pages. It just sat on my desk uh, for two years and I would, you know, kind of like, uh, I was, I was scared to o- even open it at first, but actually the more, the more I, you know, was comfortable and was talking to people, the more interesting it became to, to dive into that stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think the big takeaway for me was actually how little we, we still know about the brain in particular and, and its relationship to our movement. Um, you know, the motor cortex, w- which is the, primary seat of, of voluntary movement in our brain, um, that was discovered, you know, quote-unquote discovered in 1870, right, um, by, by, these two, by these two Germans working on, uh, they were doing experiments on live dogs uh, and <laughs> uh, pretty pretty gruesome stuff back in those days. But so that, you know, that, that idea that we, there's an area of our brain that's kind of responsible for, mo- you know, the vast majority of our voluntary movement, that that's been around. We've known that for for over a century, almost a century and a half now. But, we, but there's still so much we don't know about what happens from that little patch in our brain, you know, down to the muscles and the precision and the intricacy of the way that we move on a daily basis. And you know, the the best way to to kind of underline this is. Look at where we are today in, in artificial intelligence and robotics. All right, we have you know the best, the smartest minds in the world working on these um, these these problems uh, and trying to trying to un- figure out and create robots. Uh, and we're very good at um, at uh, at the computational aspects of robotics. We mm-hmm. we have robots that can beat us in Jeopardy, beat us in chess, you know, drive our cars, uh, answer our phones, and fin- finish our emails, and so on. Um, designing a robot that can consistently crack open a can of coke it's it's not really it's it just it's not there yet we're not there yet and and um, you know we're getting better uh, but that that problem of of movement remains a a, a huge hurdle for um, for a lot of these uh, a lot of these great researchers and so you know as I as I talk to them, you know, I, I certainly learned a lot, and, and we do know a lot about, um, you know, what it takes to, to be skilled, and, and um, you know why why practice works, uh, you know, the way it does, and, and things like that. Um, but there's still there's still a lot that we have to, uh, so a long way we have to go to really understand what makes Stephen Curry so good at what he does, right? Because you you know you look at him, he's six foot three. Yeah, but like you know, you, you'd see him walking down the street, and you wouldn't necessarily, if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't think. You wouldn't think he's an NBA superstar. Um, and so, what is it that enables him um, to be so to be so skilled and be so good? Uh, it, it was way beyond the muscles and. Um, and the tendons and the ligaments and the reaction times that, that he's able to manifest from his body—it—it it, it has to do with his brain. And so, understanding a guy like him is—is—it's—we're uh, we're a long way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned um, you know complicated problems like even surgery or flying a plane or uh, you know these these complicated questions that are you know a series of ones and zeros and computers can effectively drive cars and do all these things now. But when we get into these complex problems like. Uh, even though we might not think opening a can of soda is a complex problem, but it you know apparently is. Those are when it's it's difficult, isn't it, to to just compute those. So it's it's a fascinating area. And you know, been following the researchers around baseball, you know, if we look at, you know, some of the things they were uncovering around, you know, when to hit, when not to hit, what was the what were some of the aha moments for them that they knew they were on the right track with some of the data they were gathering in terms of actually having some actionable data that teams would be interested in?
1: Yeah, so um, they they start Jason and Jordan started with the Columbia baseball team, um, and uh, you know, so they, they had this computer simulation. They were able to um, you know sh- uh, put the EEG cap on these on these hitters, have them sit in front of a screen. They tapped a swing when they wanted to swing, um, and and they didn't do anything when they when they didn't like the pitch that was coming in. They were you know they could decide they could see whether it was a fastball, curveball, or, or a slider, and so on. Um, and, yeah, they, you know, they, they, with, their, with the EEG recordings, they, they figured out that, um, you know, there were certain players, certain hitters uh, on the team that were faster and more accurate with their decision making than others. And, you know, the coaches would say, well, it actually makes sense because this guy is um, one of our best hitters or this guy happens to have one of our happens to have the best eye on the team. And so that kind of was the first, you know, sort of eureka moment for Jason and Jordan that, okay, you know, what's happening with their decision-making does actually correlate to on-field on, on field, um, success. And, and then, you know, the more that they talk to coaches and the more that they work with other players um, at other colleges around the country, um, you know, the more that kind of, uh, that, that that stuff just, it continued to multiply. I, mean, they, I remember they were telling me about um, one of the teams they were working with at Bradley university and they did the same, the same sort of testing. And, and, you know, so they presented the coaches with a list of all the data of, of the players that were reacting, um, or were, were their decisions were happening faster, you know, the, at the times that their decisions were happening. And the coaches were like, Oh, you know, they, they, they put, pointed to a guy kind of at the bottom of the list. He was, he was reacting more slowly. And, um, and you know, you know that makes sense because we've been fig- trying to figure out this guy has the most. He's a great athlete. He's got a beautiful swing, um, and uh, we just couldn't figure out why it wasn't translating on the field. And you know, so um, and so, so looking at this, uh, the EEG and the and the reaction times uh, of the decisions, it helped them understand. Um, why things weren't necessarily working for this guy, and then you know the coaches could then go in various directions to um, to try and solve that problem or or to help this this player out. You know maybe it's um, throwing him more curveballs or or uh, you know various you know there's certain like occlusion tests uh, that you can do, hiding the baseball in different ways um, to uh, to to train a guy to improve his decision making. But just having that that knowledge that they didn't have before. that They were looking at his swing and saw how beautiful a swing he had, but um, where he was missing was, um, it was happening underneath the helmet. And so, you know, that that was kind of the first giveaway for Jason and Jordan uh, and their company which is called the Servo, um, that they could provide information to, to teams that um, they didn't have access to before. You know, all all the baseball statistics uh, from hitting up until this point had been post hoc it had been after the swing it had been you know all the on-base percentages and the you know the exit velocities and and all the money all the statistics that moneyball brought everything happened after after that pitch was either caught by the catcher as a as a you know a ball uh, or or was hit or swung at by the hitter that, but there's a lot that happens um, in those four tenths of a second in between the pitcher's release and the ball crossing home plate um, and what what can, what can that information can tell you um, can be very useful for scouting um, and can potentially be useful for training as well
0: It is a fascinating area in terms of human performance, athletic performance Last year I was at the uh, Leaders in Performance Conference which brings together all the major sports and Um, the performance staffs and executives and you know around around the whole room the brain was was the area the next frontier of of performance to be mined to be able to get you know these gains marginal gains of performance and so it is fascinating as you mentioned there because you know you can watch someone swing but being able to have an insight to what's happening as the pitch is being thrown or before the pitch is being thrown is is really interesting and when we cross over to other sports you know i think of a sport like tennis you know, you watch Roger, Roger Federer return a serve that's coming at him at 140 kilometers an hour, you know, it's almost impossible to, to see the ball at that speed. I mean, can you talk a bit about the patterns and some of these recognition that, you know, the brain's getting into to be able to differentiate, you know, what's going on in terms of where the serve might be hit, etc.?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we often talk about reaction time um, when it comes to fast-moving sports like like hitting in tennis. uh um, or hockey or things like that, but the reality is that reaction time almost has nothing to do with it. Our, our reaction time, as, really across all humans, is is roughly the same. You know, my my reaction time uh, doesn't vary that differently from someone like Mike Trout, um, and so maybe he's a little bit faster than me, <laughs> but but not too much. And so, what is it that? Yeah and and this goes back to it there was an old experiment that I wrote about in the book that they actually brought Babe Ruth into um, Columbia to test to, to test him out as trying to figure out you know Amazing. what a, Yeah and and um and uh and so they did they did all these studies on on reaction time and and um and at the time you know they thought oh this guy he's he has uh he must he has he's has got much better reaction time than everybody else based on their testing and their results that's what the conclusion that they drew and i think that kind of perpetuated a long way and i mean it certainly it, it makes sense um but in reality uh in the years since we figured out that reaction time really doesn't vary too much from person to person so um so, what is it? What is it that separates um, these great reactors um, in their sports? and and the the difference really is is their ability to predict what's happening. Um, their their skills of prediction is much better, and that just comes from years and years of of experience and and practice in um, picking up on the little cues that uh that their opponents are giving away um that are not just subtle but maybe even um you know undetectable by someone like you or or uh, or me um standing in the botter's box at the same time um and so it's it's really um you know it's really interesting there was a there was a study uh, that i wrote about in my book about um free throw shooters um in uh they did this in, in rome and um they they wanted to they, they took video of a guy shooting a free throw and they zoomed in all the way very close to the fingertips uh, as soon as the ball is being released and so they showed this clip and so they, they they didn't show anything about the ball going in or the ball you know not going in but they just zoomed into the fingertips as the ball is being released they showed this um, they showed this clip to coaches and ex players. And journalists and and fans, you know, who who watch who watch basketball very closely, and they asked him based on the video, is did the ball go in or did it go out? Um, and so, as it turns out, then they showed they showed the same clip to current players, players uh, that were currently playing professionally in uh, in Rome. It turns out that the players that were play that were that were currently playing are are far were far and away more accurate in telling whether or not the ball went in. Or not, just based on looking at the fingertips, and they were they were more accurate even than coaches, who you know spend their entire days doing watching the same
0: basketball thing. players. <laughs>
1: so you know there's something about active experience, active expertise that might um, that might just be a little bit different even than somebody even than an ex-player or a coach. Somebody you know there's something that um, these athletes are picking up um, perceptually. Uh, that helps them uh, in whatever way is necessary, um, and uh, and gives them the advantage that they need to uh, to succeed succeed in their sport. Um, you know, and I'll give you another example of of the way that prediction works in in particular in baseball. You might remember, um, you know, about 15 years ago there was a celebrity softball game, um, you know, kind of for charity and what whatnot. Yep. Um, you know, so they had Jenny Finch, the the great Olympic softball pitcher, facing some of the baseball's best hitters, Barry Bonds and Albert Pujols and you know Brian Giles, and these were the top sluggers in the game at the time. And now Finch, you know, she throws hard; she throws about 95 miles an hour, but that's not, you know, that's not like nothing that these guys face every day. And yet she gets up there and she just blows the ball by them like so they were so dumbfounded um they some of them couldn't even get the bat off of their shoulders and now why was that the reason is because she was throwing underhanded and these guys had spent their entire lives and entire careers focusing on the pitch overhand where that ball is coming out of the pitcher's hand that exact moment at that exact time and place um, and they're so they so ingrained. I was so ingrained. They're so used to watching for that um, and picking up on those cues uh, and and predicting and using those cues to predict where the ball is going to go. That uh, the slight the change to, to go underhand it, it made them amateurs again. It's um, incredible. And, you know, it's just an example of of, uh, of yeah the way again that this has nothing to do with vision. It has nothing to do with reaction time. It's your brain's ability to predict um to use uh, what it has around its 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 memory and also its perceptual mechanisms to predict what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's uh that's really something isn't it to be to see that. I remember watching the highlights of that. It was just incredible to see. Um as you mentioned, the best of the best in the game and just uh, struggling to to keep up and you know, when we look at technology, I mean so much promise in technology and and monitoring across all sports and different domains whether we're talking uh, you know, recovery or outputs, and obviously the brain as well. In, in researching the book and, and the information that you were able to compile, you know, obviously a lot of promises are made around what we can do with with a lot of this information. You know, what did you uncover around you know various apps or various devices that were actually coming up with some substantial potential, and then some of the ones that maybe not uh, not so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I tried to kind of Focus. Um, I, I didn't want to get too far uh, into the, um, you know, into the brain gaming and uh, you know the 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 whatever it's called, the cognitive, you know, cognitive uh, cognitive gaming and you know yeah. things like you know um, there are various words for it um, and uh, and it's it's definitely it's a growing field for sure. You know I, the reason that I liked the Servo um, and the reason I followed them was that. Um, and, and made them the focus of the book is that their their premise at least when they start and they kind of have changed their business model a little bit and that you know that that also was came into the story it's very tough sports science is, it's a tough business it really is yeah. Uh, you know, and, and te- teams uh, want certain things, and they want things to be easy and marketable and and packaged right. And so, um, you know, a couple of neuroscientists trying to get into this uh, into this industry was, um, I think, it was eye opening for, for them and uh, and fun for me to chronicle as well. Um, but the reason that I, I liked them and and uh, initially was that they weren't necessarily offering performance benefits, right? They were they were saying we we have kind of like we're like a we're offering like a radar gun right we're offering Mm. this is a for the brain it's the the brain yeah it's 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 measuring how quickly um your brain signals are firing and you can do with it what you want you know you can use that information however you want we're not promising that your hitters are going to get better um we're not necessarily promising that you're going to be able to scout the next um you know the next mike trout because of this information but you know we know that you're hungry for data and this is data that's never been accessed before and and we can help you access it and so i just i kind of liked that uh simplicity and and the um you know the 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 lack of the promise anytime that companies are promising a lot um especially when it comes to performance um just you know kind of me as a journalist my my antennas tend to go up and and make me kind of curious and, and, and really what's what's actually happening here and, and you know how are you how is how is how is this actually happening um and so i did kind of like that they weren't promising much but you know they're they're not the only um you know they're the only company that i know of that's using eeg uh and they they're using their background as they are neuroscientists i mean they're mm-hmm. they PhDs. Um, you know, so they're the only ones that I know of that are using that, that neuroscience background, um, with neuroimaging equipment and bringing that onto the sports field. Maybe that's changed in recent months, but, um, as far as I know, you know, they're the only ones, you know, there are some other companies that are, that are certainly interested in, in trying to, um, you know, trying to harness the, or trying to understand, you know, the brain and. and pitching themselves as as neural um, or or you know perceptual and co- and cognitive companies, um, you know. But uh, I'm not that I'm not that familiar with them enough to necessarily you know um, endorse any or sure. or or, or, um, or critique any. I just I don't have the, the familiarity with that. But it's definitely you're right. I mean it's a growing field. Teams are are certainly interested in it, and um, and I think it absolutely absolutely has to be. A a growing field. I think if you're an an executive um, or somebody uh, you know working for a sports team, and you're not looking in this direction to to try and understand the way that the brain um, is is uh, used by your athlete, I think you're you're missing out. I think it's the um, it's uh, it's it's absolutely the future. Um, it's we're, our understanding, our knowledge about it is only going to grow. Um, there might be mistakes made, you know, along the way. But um, you know, where we are today is so far from where we need to be in terms of our understanding of, you know, what's what are effective uses of practice. Why do we do batting practice? You know, just these questions that that bother me. <laughs> yeah,
0: batting practice at sixty five miles an hour, only to yeah. step into the batter's box against ninety eight.
1: There's just things that, exactly, there's just things that, that, uh, that we still do based on, I guess, just habit and tradition and it, and in sports. And it just, it, it, it flummoxes me. I don't understand it. Um, and so, uh, anything, um, that whole, uh, that will uh, you know, ask some of these questions or, or test some of these, you know, conventions, I think is important.
0: Especially when you th- talk about batting practice in a sport where they play almost every single day for 180 days, you'd, you'd think that, uh like you said, tradition reigns pretty strong and then these things are, are are kept in in the system and you know Zach, throughout writing the book, you know when we think about take-home messages that translate whether you're an athlete, whether you're a coach practitioner you know performing in your job, what were some things around the brain that resonated with you there you know, some real take-home messages Ah uh, I mean, you know it to me it just it became it was an entirely
1: new way of looking at almost everything that I've known about sports and about athleticism, um, and and I know that sounds like grandiose and and um, and silly, but it's it's really true. I mean, I you know I um, I think as, as sports fans and, and and athletes, you know, growing up, we're we're sort of conditioned to think about. Um, the physical, the physical aspects of of performance. We 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 are, are enamored with you know with the, the tall, the super tall guys and and the, the you know the, the genetic gifts of, of some of these this how fast they run, how high they jump, um, you know, and uh, and how hard they throw, but that that's just such a small piece of what make great athletes really great, right? When LeBron James is running down the court. And again, he's as fast as they come. He jumps as high as they, they can as they can jump. But when he's struggling down the court and he makes a be- perfect behind-the-pack pass to an open teammate in a fast break, you know, we don't necessarily think anything of it these days because he, he makes it look so easy. He does it so often. Um, but the the computations that are required um, for him to be able to uh, not just predict where his teammates going to be, but also to sort of sense where his opponents are going to be while running down the court and also dribbling at the same time, it, it's it's mind boggling. Um, you know what these guys are able to do. And again, it just you know it's not about you know he didn't have to lift a lot of weights in order to be able to do that. He didn't have to he didn't have to to you know um, to jump. Uh, straight up in the air and do squats in order to be able to make those passes. It's something else, you know. It's something that he's practiced or worked on, you know, playing the game of basketball that makes him a genius. It really does, and and that you know is is one of the things that I argue in these in this book is that you know these s- super skilled athletes are a form of genius. They are using their brains, um, maybe not in a way that we necessarily think about intellect and computation and and, and problem-solving but it is it is you know I remember talking to um, one of the neuroscientists that I that I wrote a lot about John um uh, from Johns Hopkins and um, he's one of the really the great thinkers of of our generation and he just loves athletes he's fascinated by them he loves steph curry uh endlessly uh curious about what makes steph curry so good and you know we were talking about um skill and and athletics and and you know why it seems that sports writers you know he was teasing me a little bit about being a sports writer he's like you sports writers you know you're always obsessed with the body and and the physical <laughs> you know, physical traits of these guys and you're writing about how fast they throw how fast they run and how high they jump it it's just not it just it's just you know it's it man, it just means nothing and he, and he goes he's like you know it's like saying that I, somebody who speaks french really well is because he has a very dexterous tongue it's just the wrong place to assign the credit and, interesting you know, a light bulb went off you know to me and and maybe I'm the only one but um, you know I think he's absolutely right. Uh, there's there's a lot there's so much more that goes into um, skill and being a great athlete than um, the uh, the motor outputs per se. it's what it's all those in, it's, it's what's the uh, you know the brain is doing to produce that movement that is the key for these guys anyway, as well.
0: absolutely Ed last season had uh, Dr. John Sullivan, a neuroscientist as well, works in, in professional sports. He wrote a great book called The Brain Always Wins and I think that's a good uh, you know good title for for the themes of, of what you talk about in, in your book and of course, you know so many great studies that you talk about and you know great stories as well and of course, you know I think I've heard a few sports writers talk about how you know you're a writer first and a sports writer second and, and today if we shift gears here a little bit, obviously, Doctors, nutritionists, strength coaches—everybody's writing online now. You know what makes a great writer? Oh,
1: jeez. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I—I—I I, I don't know. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm certainly, um, you know, not—not not the one to to be um, to be you know trying to summarize any of that.
0: Any well, I mean, that. in your experience, and obviously the levels that you've achieved, and obviously a lot of uh, wisdom to share, so.
1: You know, listen, I mean, I, I think um, for me as a journalist, uh, I I have um, certainly a healthy curiosity about things. Um, and I've always wanted to, to know, you know, uh, why things are. Uh, I guess that's kind of the question that that um, the, this thing that sort of nags at me. Um, and even as I'm watching sports, you know, I'm not that interested in covering sports in and, and that sort of the day to day who wins who lost. But I, I really have always wanted to know um you know what uh, what's happening to, to make these to make these athletes so great and, and um you know just some of those bigger bigger questions um that maybe seem unanswerable but um you know I, that they always kick around in my mind a little bit. So you know, I guess uh, you know curiosity is, is certainly one thing, and, and um, you know just observation is always a is always a powerful one. I you know whenever I speak to classes and you know younger writers and students, um, you know I'm always talking to them about um, about looking around and and um, you know keeping your eyes open. It's so easy to to um, to get most of your feel like you're getting most of your stories or trying to cover things via via Twitter today. Um, yeah, and for sure. uh, <laughs> And it's and it certainly makes it you know easier to find find some things, but I just I think that's um, that can also be a dangerous habit um, spending too much time in a, in a social media feed. I think it's important to you know to um, to get out and and um, you know observe as much as possible and and um, you know just you know uh, just try and see things in a in a different perspective and um, I, absolutely. You know, Translate as far as how that translates into writing. I guess um, you know uh, it's. Um, I I I always wanted to write a book, um, but I, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to do do one uh, at the time that I did it. But you know, sometimes one of these stories kind of hits you, and and um, it just you can't let it go. And uh, for me, that's what this one was. Um, you know, I would say to anybody who's who's interested in following in the footsteps and wants to write a book. I'm all for it. I just would hesitate. you got to make sure that you're ready to spend like three years, three or four years. <laughs> yeah. You can't do these things that you're ready to ditch after a month or so um, because it's a lot of work. And, and um, it's uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a relationship that you have to be willing to, to get into um, it, uh, because um, otherwise it's going to be torturous.
0: I mean, the storytelling aspect is fascinating on a, on a number of fronts. I mean, one, when we look at just the research around it, you know as you talk about the brain of just storytelling from generation to generation and from an evolutionary perspective of being able to pass on information and having people remember it in in those settings is so important and our sports psych at Canada basketball Dr. Peter Jensen always talks about how you know 90% of the decisions that we make are based on emotion and of course any good marketer knows that you know telling a good story is how people um, you know triggers emotion and then people respond to that and you know as a sports writer I imagine that's a big part of you know the storytelling in athletes of that the story behind the athletes and and how you can really convey messages through those stories and so I think that's a great part with you know your book as well and just as a journalist or writer how those stories can really connect with people and influence you know as a practitioner myself and you know whether people are strength coaches or doctors you know we sometimes try to give the facts to people to influence decision making and of course there's a place for education but you know being able to use stories to convey some of the things we're trying to to get across is a pretty powerful tool isn't it
1: i absolutely i
0: mean it it is and and um
1: you know uh as as um as i try to go about this this book in particular um you know i these these scientists that i that i focused on they weren't you know, maybe not. We're not the award-winning scientists. They're certainly brilliant, um, and uh, and they're, they're they're leaders of their field. But they they weren't you know the the preeminent um, Nobel laureates that that um, you know I could have I could have chosen to to tell the story. But I wanted to find people that yeah that I thought were interesting that I thought could you know, could, uh, describe things and, and also be relatable to, to the readers, um, you know, in ways that, that were, that brought, brought it a little bit more to life. You know, it could have, I tried not to make it as maybe, you know, some people will say it was, it was dry, but I tried not to make it as dry as it, as, uh, you know, a, as a, I guess a book about neuroscience <laughs> could have been. Um, and, uh, and I think that's partly, or at least mostly because, um, because of the characters that were involved in. and and um and yeah these are these are scientists um that are asking pretty deep and fundamental questions but um you know i thought they were uh great um the, just great people to spend time with um for me and and i hope uh, for the readers as well
0: fantastic well it is definitely a terrific book and you know zach where can people stay connected with you and uh, pick up a copy of the book
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, you know, you can pick up a copy anywhere. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, Amazon. I Amazon guess Amazon these days, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I hesitate to say Amazon, but it, it is the. Uh, it's hard to, hard to beat Amazon um, with uh, next day delivery. But uh, sure. um, yeah. So, uh, but otherwise, uh, it's in it's in most major bookstores. Um, and uh, and yeah. So my my Twitter is um, just at Z Schoenbrunn. Um, And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I don't, I don't tweet as much as I, maybe I should, uh, these days, but, uh, you can definitely, you know, you can reach out to me, uh, if you have any questions, um, I'm happy to, happy to help.
0: Amazing, Zach. I appreciate you carving out some time today and, uh, we'll definitely include all those links in the show notes and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the performance nutrition podcast. Quick update. The peak online course will launch November 1st and enrollment is now open. We've sold all our spots at 50% off the regular price. So massive thank you to all the early birds out there. If you'd like to join the first group, upskill your performance nutrition toolbox and connect with experts and like-minded practitioners, you can still save $65 off the regular price. Just head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org to claim your spot or email carly at drbubs.com. C-A-R-L-Y at drbubs.com. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed this terrific episode. If you did, please share with one or two of your friends or colleagues and support the show by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. Until next time.